Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Deanna Oppenheimer, founder, Cameo Works and Chair, Hargreaves Lansdowne. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming out on a wet uh, evening. Um, I'm delighted that you're here, and a very warm welcome to the University of West of England in Bristol. I'm Steve West. I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University, and I've been the Vice-Chancellor now for 12 years, and I've been here for 22 years in total. So I think I'm beginning to learn how the place works um, and hopefully getting it on to the right tracks. Um, I'm here to just welcome you, of course, but also to give you some of the information about how this evening's going to work. The first thing is that we're not expecting a fire alarm. If the fire alarm does go off, it's um, a mixture of a lot of noise in your ears, but then some fairly clear instructions. Uh, if it does go off, there are emergency exits on either side and at the back. Uh, you will be helped out, shepherded out, uh, by colleagues who are more familiar with the building and we will take you into the car park where most of you probably uh, parked this evening um, but hopefully that won't happen uh, and we won't be interrupted. Can I encourage you to perhaps put your mobile phones onto silent but don't turn them off because we're going to get you to be uh, part of this evening and encourage you to uh, tweet um, and maybe take some pictures unless you don't want your picture taken and put out onto the internet um, using uh, the tweet hashtag sign hashtag Bristol lectures um, and that will therefore allow you to hopefully share your enjoyment of this evening uh, with colleagues across the globe. Uh, we're also going to be podcasting um, and that will be in a few weeks time so keep your eyes open in terms of the podcasts. Um, that's it in terms of the village announcements. I'm going to just say a little bit about uh, these lecture series. The starting place really was uh, a celebration of our first director of the Polytechnic, a chap called Dob uh, Dr. Robert Bolland. Dr. Robert Bolland's uh, head, not his real head of course, um, <laughs> is there. And he was the director of uh, a newly formed institution called Bristol Polytechnic back in 1974. And every year we hold the Bolland Lecture in celebration for a visionary man who uh, really set, I guess, the path for what is now the University of the West of England. And whilst the university on occasions will demonstrate that we are far older than a university down the road called Bristol University. We can trace our roots back to 1595, uh, which makes us older than they are. Um, uh, we don't tend to use that family tree in history any longer. We use the more modern starting place, which is the birth of Bristol Polytechnic. Dr. Bolland uh, was a chemist by uh, background but he was passionate about education and he was passionate about serving the needs of local communities. He was passionate about connecting with business and in particular he was really passionate about part-time sandwich provision and also practice-based education. So education that had 
a very clear link into uh, industry sectors. So when we think of the university now, uh, the university has just uh, signed off the 2030 strategy, uh, which we'll be formally launching uh, in the new year. But the university has focused on the relationships that it has with local businesses, uh, from large to small, global to local. It focuses on public sector services, and it focuses on creating graduates who are ready and able, ready and able to go into what can on sometimes be seen as a pretty uncertain future. But we believe that the environments within which we are supporting our students, educating our students, prepare them for that uncertainty, clearly give them information and knowledge, but also attributes that will allow them to change over time. And that's something that we're all uh, very focused on, recognising that now for many of our graduates leaving the university, and we'll be meeting one a little later, they've probably got 50, 60 years ahead of them in terms of the expectations of their working life. So the world looks quite different. So our engagement with business we are incredibly proud of and we are working, I'm pleased to say, very closely with fintech and business tech communities and in particular, of course, Hargreaves Lansdowne and we have just pushed a button, um, hopefully, for a very large project that we'll be doing in partnership, um, providing uh, the government funds it, but even if they don't, we're still going to do it um, because we think it's important. Um, so I'm delighted uh, to uh, welcome uh, Dina. You are very welcome. Thank you very much for giving our lectures tonight. Um, and I know that um, Stephen will introduce you and uh, will ensure that we all know your background and profile. But I am going to take you up on I hope, one offer, which is to see how we might engage as a university um, across the Atlantic uh, and develop a truly international global gateway, which is something that we uh, and our local enterprise partnership and combined authority are keen to do, to reach out across the globe to create new economic trade and, I think, education trade as well. But before we hear from our guest speaker this evening, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Joshua Wood. And Joshua Wood has been part of our university community, he tells me, for 11 years. And indeed, on his birthday, uh, apparently woke up to find that he was the face of the university uh, in one of our prospectuses. So uh, he is um, uh, very proud of that, of course, as you can imagine. 30,000 students, and we picked Joshua. So, uh, but Joshua has obviously been through the university education, uh, been through architecture, he tells me, and we have been supporting him in a very new and important part of the university. A university that is focused on creating entrepreneurs, we hope, of the future, and certainly through Future Space and through Launchpad and a variety of other, other initiatives that we have across the university to help support young people with talent to begin to think about their futures and possibly building their own companies. And I'm delighted that Joshua Wood is going to be sharing a little bit of his life over the past few months as uh, a new graduate startup being supported within the university, uh, building his company called Bayhouse. Joshua, the floor is yours. Thanks. Hello, 
My name is Josh. I'm an architect, lecturer here at UWE, and now an inspiring entrepreneur. This is my cabin, which I built, in and lived, I built and lived in for three years in a secret place in Bristol. <laughs> so why would I decide to live like this, in such a small space, without an address? Well, it turns out that many are doing the same. In fact, the tiny home movement is upon us. Think of George Clark's Amazing Spaces, Netflix's Tiny Home Nation, and groups such as the Bristol Tiny Home Movement. The obvious reason is the price of houses in this country. My generation are being dubbed Generation Rent in the expectation that most of us will never own our own, uh, afford our own houses. So living small can save on rent, but there are also many other reasons why people are excited about tiny homes. Uh, I sold my cabin on Facebook uh, about five months ago, and in doing so, had about 100 messages from a huge variety of people. One mother wanted a play space for her kids, an artist wanted a garden studio, a cyclist needed space to work on his bikes, a surfer wanted a place to make tea and relax by the coast. Many wanted to turn their farm or land into a glamping site. Eventually, I sold it to... Eventually, I sold it to a couple who wanted to spend more time in their paddock who recently told me that they spent the whole summer in it and did not want to return home. So there are a few uh, companies emerging in the last few years. The cost of these ready-built tiny homes range from around 50,000 to 120,000. Other options for extra space often lack insulation, are poorly designed, being inflexible or impractical, are difficult to build, requiring much skilled labor, are too permanent, requiring concrete slabs, or are difficult to transport, and in many cases, are too ugly. So, uh, Bayhouse, or Bayhouse, uh, is a flat pack, build your own, modular, tiny home system that is easy to build, high performing, practical, adaptable, sustainable, transportable, and looks like it's been designed by an architect. <laughs> Uh, like nothing else out there, the Bayhouse system allows incredible flexibility of design. The kit of parts can include different furniture or bay arrangements to produce limitless designs such as garden offices, office meeting pods, bike shelters and much more. Bays can also be changed later by easily swapping out furniture parts for others. This flexibility is in recognition of the variety of potential customers and their intended uses. And it's why the Bayhouse model not only enables customers to build their own space, but also to design it using this simple and fun website interface where users can choose from kitchen bay, studio bay, play bay, meeting bay, bed bay, bike bay, dining bay, and so on. The system is an evolution of the birch plywood portal frame method I used for my cabin. Only this time, an entirely digitalized, digitally fabricated kit of parts, which can be produced by any CNC machine across the world, will enable a relatively unskilled couple to build outside over a long weekend. Users will not need to measure anything, cut anything. They will not need to use a hammer, a drill, any holes, or pour any concrete or plaster. They will only need a screwdriver on a few occasions. So initial pricing puts a five-bay garden office at around 15,000 a bike shelter around 4,000, and an office pod at around 3,000. The time is right for tiny homes. Um, Bay House is an exciting project to work on, to which I thank LaunchBase for their help. If you'd like to know more or would like your own Bay House, 
please contact me via the website at bayhouse.co.uk or speak to me after the show. Bayhouse may be tiny, but it represents something much bigger. Thank you. Wow. Um, I think that speaks volumes about what a talented man Joshua is. But also, it says something about this university and how much it can grow great people doing new things with real skills. And goodness me, how we need that in Bristol, how we need that in the UK. Well, for me, it is absolutely wonderful to be back at Bristol Business School here at a new season of the Distinguished Address, which is always wonderful, always good to come back and see what weight the Vice-Chancellor is this term. <laughs> I'll suffer for that later, I suspect. But wow, here for the Bolland Lecture, it is a full house. Deanna, you are box office. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tonight, in the nicest possible sense of the word, it is a sellout. Uh, let me just acknowledge our friend Dr. Robert Bolland, uh, who was the, the brains, the moving spirit behind creating Bristol Polytechnic. Important to notice that my wife is a proud graduate of Bristol Poly, as she insists on calling it. Now, UWE has attracted some absolutely outstanding speakers for the Bolland Lecture every year. It certainly is the most prestigious event in the Distinguished Lecture Series. And tonight, I believe, we continue that tradition. Indeed, we move it up a notch or two. I have to declare an interest in these things. Deanna is my chair of the board at Hargreaves Lansdowne. But that does mean I have a ringside seat to see at first hand the extraordinary breadth of knowledge of the digital economy and digital capability that is turning the world on its head. And even more impressive, let me tell you, this is a woman who can eat airline food at 37,000 feet for about 12 hours, God knows how many times a week, and still be as sharp as a tack when she lands with us in Bristol. Indeed, she's probably the person with a bigger phone bill for 4 a.m. than anyone else in Seattle, but doubtless you can ask questions about that later. Just to reinforce what you know about our speaker, Deanna is chair of Hargreaves Lansdowne PLC, uh, but she also serves on the board of Tesco and of Whitbread here in the UK, as well as a senior advisor to the uh, very famous uh, Bain & Co management consultancy. And by contrast, in her hometown of Seattle, she runs her own business called Cameo Works, where she nurtures small startups and turns them into highly successful grown-ups. Uh, I think it's true to say Deanna has disrupted more markets than I could shake a stick at, a cyber stick, obviously. She has seen how you turn lead into gold and water into wine. On top of this, Deanna is a powerful advocate 
for gender diversity within business. We're fortunate that she's going to stay behind afterwards to uh, address your questions. So do please think of any points you want to make in this rare public opportunity when uh, Deanna is with us. Ladies and gentlemen, please will join with me in welcoming the chair of Hargreaves PLC, Ms. Diana Oppenheimer. Thank you so much. It is, um, good evening ladies and gentlemen, it is just such a humbling uh, pleasure to be here. And after the introduction, after Josh, after everything, um, I am very humbled and really hope that I keep your attention this evening because uh, this, is, uh, this is a tough act to follow. Um, Vice Chancellor West, uh, thank you as well for the invitation and everything that you've done at UWE. Um, I, I would like to begin this evening with a quote from a British scholar, P.D. Smith. Ideal cities are very much the product of their own ages. Designed as complete urban statements, they bear the unmistakable print of their own culture and worldview in every street and building. And yet, to be successful, a city has to be open to continuous development, free to evolve and grow with the demands of new times. Now, two cities have been really pivotal in my life. Bristol and my hometown, as Stephen referenced, Seattle, which is in the Pacific Northwest of America. These cities are undergoing rapid development that reflects our modern tech-driven society. As they grow and change, being ideal will always be an aspirational goal, always somewhere ahead of where we are. But I firmly believe that Seattle and Bristol are ideally placed to help advance the rapid transformation that's occurring in our world economy and to benefit from it as long as we're willing to evolve and grow with those demands of our own times. In dividing my time between Seattle and Bristol, I've been struck by the similarities between the two cities. Some of these similarities are pretty obvious. Bristol is a vital part of what's known as Silicon Gorge, less than a two-hour train ride from London, while Seattle is a two-hour flight north from San Francisco and tech mecca Silicon Valley. Both Bristol and Seattle are port cities with abundant waterfronts and green spaces. Cycling is ascendant in both places where 26% of Bristolians cycle. And in Seattle, there are about 169,000 cyclists or 23% of the population. Now they all have one thing in common. They do not mind pedaling up hills, which one visible exhausted cyclist described as too steep to even walk one's dog. But the similarities really go much deeper than that. Both Bristol and Seattle benefit from access to abundant intellectual capital and markets around the world. Both cities are home to economic titans that have helped transform the world economy. And both cities are currently cultivating startups, like Josh's, that are working to improve the lives of people across the planet. All of these assets offer an immense opportunity. The intellectual heft 
and fertile business environment that Bristol and Seattle enjoy have potential to build these two cities into models for the upcoming decades. It won't be easy, though. Both Bristol and Seattle face infrastructural and societal impediments that could derail their progress. Tackling those issues will take every bit as much creativity and drive from governments, businesses, universities, residents, as building the next Amazon or Hargreaves Lansdowne from a founder-fueled vision and passion. But with investment in the right sectors and commitment to cultivating the creativity and innovation of the upcoming generation, many of whom are sitting in this room tonight, these two cities have the capability to show the world what a new model for a tech hub can look like. Though they're both overlooked often in the shadow of their larger counterparts, uh, Bristol and Seattle are hotbeds of tech innovation. The comparatively cheaper prices and access to brilliant local talent draw engineers, innovators, entrepreneurs from all over the world. And much of the ongoing work in Bristol and Seattle is helping lay the groundwork for what's being called the fourth industrial revolution. This will be a transformation unparalleled in the scope of human history. Now, lest you think I'm overstating my case, try to remember the change that the internet has brought in the past 29 years to virtually every facet of our life since the World Wide Web became public. Already smartphones, artificial intelligence, and the Internet of Things are fundamentally reshaping economies all over the world. As the fourth industrial revolution proceeds, the lines between the physical, digital, and biological worlds will blur. To use a rather simplistic illustration, a robotic arm is a physical aid for someone who lost a limb. But if it has an operating system, is patched into your brain, and receives periodic updates over Wi-Fi, then it represents integration on a scale that would never have been conceivable a mere two years before. Companies in Bristol and Seattle are operating on the vanguard of this revolution. They are developing innovations that will radically change how we work, live, and socialize in the coming decades. Here in Bristol, you can find valuable, boundary-pushing robotics work that has applications in medicine, manufacturing, and defense, and you can find companies on the frontier of microprocessors, AI, and virtual reality. The one thing we know for certain about these technologies is they will change the world in ways we can't comprehend. And then there's a vibrant fintech ecosystem here as well that will gather in a few weeks' time at the Bristol Technology Festival, where Fintech West will feature prominently. Seattle hosts its own share of innovative companies performing cutting-edge work with AI, VR, and augmented reality not to mention cloud technologies. So as Bristol and Seattle stand at this precipice, a few key questions are front of mind to help us determine the way forward. What makes a city into a tech hub? How do our world-class cities remain relevant and competitive in an age of constant change? And what obstacles stand in the way? Well, Bristol and Seattle host major companies both in and outside the tech sector. And that is a vital part to provide a solid foundation for technological advances. Because as technology becomes more ubiquitous, the line that divides tech companies from others is becoming even fainter. 
As any cantankerous 60-year-old mechanic will tell you, cars today are just complex computers on wheels. Mattress companies are now stringing sensors through their products to track your sleep, and even your coffee maker will respond to you in Welsh if you ask it nicely. In this new connected future that we inhabit, cities with large companies have adapted to the rate of constant change, enjoy an advantage, and both Bristol and Seattle sport major aerospace companies. Airbus here in Bristol and Boeing in Seattle. So while Bristol hosts a number of major manufacturers like BAE and Rolls-Royce, Seattle is home to retailers like Costco, tech giants like Amazon and Microsoft, and that small coffee shop we know as Starbucks, where I get my morning coffee from the original first store that is now one of the top two most visited uh, tourist destinations in all of the Pacific Northwest. So the presence of these giants offer benefits for far beyond job creation. Their presence is inspiring for entrepreneur-minded graduates who need some extra motivation. They also offer space for people and small companies to hone their skills and prove themselves in larger environments with bigger client bases. Many innovators spend decades working for large corporations before they gain competence, knowledge, and that savings they need that they need to start out their own companies. Experience in industry plays a key role, not only in knowing how the game is played, but knowing where the change and opportunity lies. These larger companies also offer opportunities to the students that can be difficult to find elsewhere. Take, for example, at Hargreaves Lansdowne. We're very proud to be only one of two FTSE 100 companies that are Bristol-born and homegrown. HL has hired 55 placement students over the past five years. Now, that's in addition to offering graduates programs, apprenticeships, different internship schemes for those who have finished their studies. So while HL is only the first step for many of these graduates, 88% have remained at the company for years. So they enjoy promotions experience, but most often what they give to us is the future because that is what we are basing this company on. Opportunities like that are the very definition of a win-win. Companies certainly win by gaining, employing university graduates with creativity and energy to fuel innovation and growth. But graduates, meanwhile, benefit from steady jobs with companies at the forefront of technological advancement. Even if those graduates move on elsewhere in the community, it still fuels an economic environment. It adds to the ecosystem, which is vital for these companies and communities. So collaborations between business and local universities help create cities like Bristol and Seattle. And that helps attract them to draw talent from all over the world. Silicon Valley and London may rest on their laurels, knowing that people will come whatever they do. They have the money, they've got the attention of the world, and a bedrock of companies, large and small, to maintain their advantage. But the largest tech cities are like massive tankers. They've got a lot of inertia and power, but they're slow to, remind, to respond to changes. Smaller cities, though, function differently. They can build from the ground up to create a vibrant tech ecosystem that is nimble enough to adjust to our dynamic world.
These cities live and die based on two fundamental questions. Can you grow or draw companies and convince them to stay there long term? And can you draw talent or grow it? Because the companies will only be as successful, it goes without saying, as the talent that they attract. People come for university or for a job, but they stay because they love it. They stay because there's something there that they can't find elsewhere. They find their passion. So what can each of us do to achieve these objectives? Well, enticing companies to a city is a complicated process involving a lot of public policy questions that's beyond the scope of what I'm going to address tonight. But there are a few things that are crucial to do that. And one is where we are sitting tonight. It's a vibrant university system. For people, particularly young people, the draw is pretty simple. Where can I get a great education? Where can I see myself living? What's my quality of life, my cost of living? There are opportunities in Seattle and Bristol that many cities don't have. As students move away from home, these world-class universities are really vital. Seattle's friendly business environment relies heavily on local universities. The University of Washington in Seattle and the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma offer explicit programs to steer undergraduates towards careers in business and entrepreneurship. Meanwhile, the University of Washington's Foster School of Business is consistently ranked as one of the best business schools in the region and the top 20 nationwide. They ensure that students, like here, from all majors with a passing interest in business can take classes in entrepreneurship. The Burke Center for Entrepreneurship engages with over 1,500 students a year through classes, events, and competitions. They actually work with innovators, pairing them with businesses around the city to give them advice, mentoring, and in some cases, actual help starting a business. They ensure that engineers, data scientists, even actors have the opportunity to learn business and entrepreneurship. Now, if I sound somewhat devoted and very excited about these programs, please forgive me, it's because I am. I graduated from the University of Puget Sound, and I was the first woman and the first alum to chair the board of trustees there. I'm currently an endowed co-chair for the University of Washington Foster School. It's a one-year term that integrates business business leaders, particularly with the students and faculty, no matter where they are in the world, having just hosted a group in the UK that was here from there. Through my work with these universities, I've seen the transformative power of business and education relationships that cultivate innovations, relevance, and inspiration. And it never ceases to amaze me how much more those students really um, were ever smarter than I ever was. So here, Right here, there are world-class education in engineering and innovation. And I see a lot of parallels of those between what we're seeing in Seattle, as I heard and learned about more of the programs that are at UE. But one statistic really stood out. 95% of the UE students graduate into employment. In my experience, that's remarkable and a huge opportunity again, to create that ecosystem of tech. Bristol's home to Bristol Robotics Lab, a, co a collaboration that is on the vanguard of that fourth industrial revolution. 
the type of coordination that BRL exemplifies is a huge benefit to innovation. Because by collaborating, we expose ourselves often to concepts that we couldn't possibly imagine and discover creative powers that we never realized we have. Now, what about outside the university environment? What is it about the cities themselves? Well, the sea-adjacent cities, Bristol and Seattle, are blessed with mild climates and pleasant sea breezes, except for tonight. <laughs> Their ports connect them to the world, and they often have shipping avenues for manufacturing giants. They're also environmentally uh, friendly towns with abundant green space and reasonable parks and cycling routes and nature. And that type of creativity that launches an innovative tech hub is really intrinsically linked to the creativity that spurs artistic expression. Access to film, street art, music benefits the overarching innovative culture and makes engineers and entrepreneurs more creative, developing both their right brain and left brain creativity and analytics. So let's consider Bristol for just a moment. Seattle's birthplace of Jimi Hendrix and grunge, that alternative rock genre that had parents in the 90s in absolute connections. Uh, Bristol, meanwhile, I was pleased to see on one of my first visits here, I looked over and there was Cary Grant in all his glory. Um, Ardman Animations, the producers of Wallace and Gromit. The Bristol underground scene, which created its own blend of music and street art, elevated arts, artists like Banksy who have expanded this generation's perception of what art would be. Now why is that important? Because music, films, all of that, street food, everything, contributes to the fabric of a city and the collection of its residents. For this upcoming generation of engineers and programmers, as the fourth industrial revolution picks up speed, the capabilities of AI will expand. So tasks currently performed by engineers, programmers, will become automated and new professional opportunities will open up. But these new jobs, the jobs of the future, are going to require coordination of both the left and right brain. It will improve that we will have to have soft skills, strategic thinking, and creativity. That type of thinking can't actually be learned in a book or picked up on an online course. It stems from cultural exposure, from the millions of little intangible inspirations that come from exposure to diverse art, food, and culture. The cities that separate themselves from the pack will be those that foster diversity and inclusion. Not only will a vibrant cultural scene attract more innovative, adaptive people, but it will help cultivate the dynamic, creative environment that's also so difficult to measure. But it's crucial. It's what will make the difference between a city that almost made it and flourished. Seattle and Bristol have a great deal to offer residents who are fed up with the cost of living in large tech hubs. Increasingly, even companies are becoming sensitive to the costs in San Francisco and London. In fact, big tech companies in Silicon Valley, some of them now encourage new hires to live not only beyond the traditional city limits, but you're only restricted to the same time zone in the western United States. That's about 10 states 
that can be in your commute area. Neither Bristol nor Seattle is exactly cheap, but Bristol's consumer prices are 12% lower than London's, and its rent is 48% lower. Meanwhile, consumer prices in Seattle may only be 6% lower than San Francisco's, but rent is about 73% cheaper. So given all these advantages, I would like to talk about a few obstacles that could curtail either the expansion of business or the desire of the residents to remain. So tech companies tend to be more mobile than firms in most other sectors. It can be kind of a hassle to move a factory, but changing the location of a bunch of desks and an internet hookup is easier. So in much the same way that Seattle and Bristol challenge their larger counterparts, they also compete with other regional hubs like Austin and Denver in the US, or Edinburgh, Cardiff, and Manchester in the UK. And that's without even counting the numerous cities around the world like Berlin, Singapore, Cape Town that are now competing for tech talent. So while such a wide variety of innovative cities is unquestionably good for our respective countries and customers around the world, it also is forcing us to perform at the top of our game, lest people decide to move elsewhere and companies follow. The United States and the UK have historically been two of the most open companies and countries uh, to talent from around the world. That status is currently at risk and it jeopardizes both Seattle and Bristol, which have benefited greatly from a foreign-born population. Because we rely on intelligent, motivated workers who have virtually the opportunity to go anywhere. And that is an important source of intellectual capital. The cost of housing can be a further obstacle, so it's so great to hear about what Josh is doing here. Um, though housing is cheaper in Seattle and Bristol than nearby Silicon Valley and London, rents in both cities are increasing sharply. Rent in Bristol has risen 33% in the last five years, and Seattle's rise is 18%. Now, there's lots of companies and charities working to address housing affordability. Several startups, like Josh's, are working to improve the efficiency of the rental market, build modular homes. And Microsoft, Josh, has pledged $500 million for affordable housing in Seattle, and I would like to introduce you to some people there. <laughs> Employees also need to be able to get to work, and that's one of the key issues that both Seattle and Bristol face. Both cities are now home to populations that their infrastructure isn't designed to handle. In truly unfortunate coincidence, the traffic in both Seattle and Bristol is ranked fifth worst in their respective nations. Seattle drivers do have a slight edge over Bristolians, though, in time spent behind the wheel, while the average commuter in Bristol loses 149 hours annually to traffic, the average Seattle driver only loses 138 hours. And while infrastructure is another challenge, many companies are taking aim at the traffic part of the equation. Both Amazon and Microsoft in Seattle, and at least one startup here in Bristol, are heavily invested in autonomous vehicle technology. This tech has immense potential to improve commute times and public safety, and to reduce unnecessary car ownership for urban drivers with access to car share programs. In addition, bike and scooter programs help the cities deal with urban congestion by addressing that first and last mile. So encouragingly, Seattle is the only major US city to increase transit ridership since 
2016. Bristol similarly saw a 44% increase in bus ridership from 2012 to 2018 compared to a nationwide 8% decrease. So these are interesting opportunities, I think, to collaborate with one another. Because the same things are going on in the same way, and what an opportunity to learn. So high rents and long commutes may dissuade potential movers, but public recognition of these challenges and advances in technology mean that solutions are more within reach than they ever have been before. So as both of our cities develop over the coming decade, we should recognize those similarities and the opportunities for what they are. They have potential to drive the next wave of technology and economic development. By learning from one another, both from our accomplishments and probably more importantly from our mistakes, we can ensure what we're seeing right now is just the start of the golden age for these two cities. But I really have faith in the young people of this world, many of whom are here tonight. Because if we help provide the space for you to learn and to work and to thrive, I know you are going to create solutions to big challenges through the newly created ecosystems that you will build. And I believe you're going to show us things for both new opportunities and solutions that we only would have imagined before. So let me leave you today with a quote from the great African-American writer, the late Toni Morrison. It's a message that applies, I think, as much to we who are on the older generation side of the audience tonight as to those students here who are out ready to make your mark on the world. So when you get these jobs that you've been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job, if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to power somebody else and make it better for everyone. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to address you tonight. Thank you very much, Deanna. That was wonderful. As I said, Deanna's very kindly agreed to take questions. So for those of you who've been here before, we're going to follow the usual protocol. If you could raise your hand, uh, a microphone will be brought um, within an arm's reach. And then I'd invite you to share your name and your organization. And please ask your question with due deference to brevity. I'm looking for our first question of the evening. Please raise your arm. Sir. Uh, good evening, my name is Muir, Muir MacDonald, um, Institute of Directors here in the Southwest. Um, thank you very much indeed for a lovely and stimulating talk uh, for us all. Uh, and thanks for reaching out to uh, the elders like me in the audience as well as uh, <laughs> the youth that you uh, gave a big chuck up to uh, uh, as you uh, s explained that uh, 
uh, all our futures is in their hands, perhaps. I've asked this question before in this room, um, and recognizing that uh, uh, your chair of uh, some significant organizations and on the boards of significant organizations, and as the Institute of Directors, I might ask this question. Um, one of the youngest people that you have on your boards, given that uh, you've just explained the significance of the energy, the perspectives that uh, the generations leaving this establishment uh, have. Thank you so much for asking that question, and I want you to know this was not planted. Um, I have made one appointment since I uh, was named chair at Hargreaves Lansdowne, and um, it is um, Dan Ollie, who is in his 40s. He is um, a technologist. He's the chief technology officer for Relax Corporation. And when we went out for that search, we basically said, um, we want somebody with a technologist. And the search firm looked at me and they said, uh, yeah, well, we've got these private equity guys that are doing everything. I said, no, no. I want the engineer that cut code all the way up, that understands exactly how you transform sits down with engineers on a whiteboard and does that, and Dan does exactly that for us. And it has made a miraculous difference, not only to the boardroom, but certainly to all of our colleagues that are in technology and in the other areas that support it, because he's been there, he's seen it. And I think, as a director, uh, one of my views is that, yes, we need to do governance, but we also need to help develop that talent that's in those companies that we govern. So. That's, that's Dan. Thanks for asking that question. <laughs> Sir. Hello. Hi. Um, my name is Frank Noble. I'm the chief executive of St. Peter's Hospice, which is our adult hospice here in Bristol. Um, you talked about business. You talked about art, transport, um, finance, tech. Um, may I ask a question around not-for-profit, um, yes. vol volunteer and, and charity? And, um, a vibrant city hopefully joins all of those together. Yes. Um, I'm interested in the delivery of care and, and, and joining that up, but I'm also interested in raising money. We have 51 shops, and, and perhaps we can do something with business around a circular, more green economy. So I'm, I'm fascinated just to hear what you think about the not-for-profit charity sector and how that might better connect in a vibrant city. Well, actually, thank you for asking that question. And uh, as I was sitting there cutting down things to make the 25 minutes, um, I didn't get to elaborate on everything because I'm passionate about nonprofits. Um, again, um, I think that it's absolutely intrinsically linked. Uh, one of the things that I'm going back to Seattle with uh, and for over this weekend is there's a charity there called Mary's Place. And uh, when you ask about youth that are on that charity board, my husband's not on that, I'm not on that, but our daughter is on that charity board. Because what they're basically doing is reaching out for a combination of business. Um, they're very highly funded by Amazon, uh, universities, as well as with um, hospitals to address the whole homelessness issue, which is a huge issue in cities where you have obviously rising house prices, which tech cities tend to drive. So I think that nonprofits are absolutely intrinsically linked because they can bring a dimension of service of a longer term mission to an ecosystem 
that businesses will not always do that. The second thing I should say, and this could be a whole nother lecture if I ever get invited back, but um, I do think that we are moving into a time where purpose-driven institutions are absolutely going to be essential. Five to ten years from now, we won't say, was there ever somebody that didn't know what their purpose was? And so I do believe, if I look at um, another company that I'm familiar with, Tesco, where we have really looked at developing out that purpose of what is the purpose of our role in the greater um, environment of the world, um, that is very crucial. So I think it's incumbent and important, and I'm pleased that there's a vibrant group here in Bristol. Tech. Um, an increasing number of the people who work for me want to work from home, not least because of the 130 hours of time they're losing traffic. They order their food from Uber Eats, they watch their films on Netflix. Do cities matter? Or, or rather, will cities matter in the future? I think they definitely matter because if you look at that trend that's happening, the projection is that um, by not too far, I believe 2025, 94%. 95% of the population of the world will be in urban environments. There's basically a re-moving back into the city. And it's for um, a number of different things. I think, one, um, the statistics about this next generation of teenagers who are not learning how to drive. Uh, it's tricky to live out in the rural areas and uh, be out there without driving your own self. So I do think that there is a draw back to urban cities and that they really do matter. But I think that what, what is interesting with cities is there are some that are desirable and there are some that are not. Now if you look at the research that's happened on San Francisco, for example, San Francisco used to be the number one place that everybody came to. That's how Silicon Valley was built. Today they've let homelessness, they've let traffic, they've let the cost of living, the cost of housing get away from them, and nobody wants to live in San Francisco anymore. So it's an interesting fleeting side of it, and that's giving growth to the next crop of cities that are coming up. But I think they really will matter, and the statistics that I've seen bear that out as well. Uh, I'm Alan Pratt. I'm a partner with law firm DSC Beechcroft. You talked about the interface, the relationship between creative subjects, creative industries, and technology industries. Uh, I wondered what advice you'd give uh, a young person such as my daughter who's uh, at that juncture now in terms of decisions she makes. The observation being is that uh, STEM and, and other sort of um, study streams sometimes don't seem to cater for students who find themselves between those two uh, interests. Yeah, you know, it's a, it is um, interesting. This is one of the, we've talked about a lot of the similarities, one of the contra contrasts um, between the education system in the U.S. and here is the um, existence of liberal arts universities. So my undergraduate degree was a liberal arts university. And in those, um, you study a wide variety of different things and uh, develop left brain, right brain skills. So that may not be an option of where the study is, but I think there's a lot beyond that you can do. And um, my, uh, my suggestion for anybody starting out um, in their careers is they get breadth. They go out and get as much breadth as they can. So they could be a physics major, that's great, 
But if they don't want to be a physicist in a lab right then, they'd go do something that opens up that breadth. Because early in your career is when you get that opportunity to really develop that foundation that can go wide. Because you will naturally, as you know, as you go up your career, um, things narrow. So having that breadth early on, I think, is one of the most important things that you can do. I happened to be a politics and government major back in the day. And my father looked at me, and he said, oh, that's great. What are you going to do? Go open a politics shop? And I said, uh, I said no, I'm not. Um, and then became a banker instead. But, uh, but I do think that breadth is really crucial. Madam. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nina Skibala. I'm from Business West, and we've run the Chamber of Commerce and a business leadership team called The Initiative. Uh, my question is, it'd be really interesting to learn how do the business community in um, Seattle sort of help shape that city? Yeah, well, it's a very, very good question, because early on, um, back when I was um, starting out in my career, the business community, it was very regional. So the U.S., um, is uh, before everybody went global, before that 29 years ago in the World Wide Web, when everybody was much more regionalized, um, it has a very tight-knit entrepreneurial um, feel in that city. I, I don't know why, but there really aren't industries. Until now, there's tech. But at that time, there were entrepreneurs like Bill Boeing, um, like Jim Senegal that started Costco, like Howard Schultz that started Starbucks, like Jeff Bezos that started Amazon. And because they didn't have a global footprint, they got together. And they talked about what they needed to do to the city, how they needed to grow the city, what they needed to do in infrastructure and nonprofits and growing talent and um, bringing those ideas together. So I think that the business community is absolutely vital. Today, what you have the opportunities for is to be able to collaborate with a lot of this technology that's coming in, startups, and to be working together but also throughout that ecosystem. Because I know it's kind of, you know, we used to call it networks, then we used to call it communities. Now the kind of buzzy thing now is ecosystems. But the point is, it's just people from a lot of different walks of life getting together for the betterment of the city. And that's vital. Madam. Thank you. Hi, my name is Laura, and I'm just graduated from UV. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. You're going to save the world for all of us in the room. <laughs> um, fintech is a very male-dominated area. Um, you are a gender um, diversity advocate. Do you, um, what's your view about how to increase um, the, the presence of women in, in the boards and in finance and technology? Yeah. It's a really good question. And the first thing that people... Um, People say to me when they talk about, you know, well, let's talk about diversity. Okay, does it matter? Yeah, it does matter. It matters because in times of uncertain times, like going through a fourth industrial revolution, um, what happens is things are unknown. And so when things are unknown, you want diversity of thought sitting around the table. Um, and that's why it really matters, and it's that diversity of thought. I actually feel so passionate about this. I've started a nonprofit in Seattle called Board Ready, and it's working in the US to get more diversity at the board level of governing boards. Um, but in this case, in funding in tech, the stats are abysmal. I mean, it's, you know, um, I think it's like 3% of the VC funding in the US are gender balanced. 
So what do we need to do? We need to start way early on with a number of different programs, which a number of groups are doing, at getting STEM into um, kids and into both boys and girls. But I think beyond that, what's going to happen as we converge these right brain, left brain skills and jobs, women are going to be really crucial in this. And so I think the smart people are going to start to figure out we need to fund some of those people and bring them along. And there are organizations um, that are starting to do that. But it just has to accelerate. It has to go faster. And part of the things that I'm seeing from my work is it's not anymore that people don't want to do it. It's that the networks are not there. And so we have to keep in this ecosystem collaborating, using all these tools to get people together um, in the right network. Because people still too often go and say, hey, Steve, who do you know? And Steve and I have the same network that might not be as diverse as we'd like. Thank you. One last question, I think, up here, if we can find the microphone. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is uh, Fiona Bevan. I run my own business, uh, Bevan Financial Management. I was just um, interested in, in hearing what your thoughts are. You know, both Seattle and Bristol are based in countries that are becoming much more inward-looking and much more protectionist. And what do you see as being the, the ways in which the cities can perhaps keep that outward-looking global view in amongst um, pressures to becoming much more inward-looking? Well, the good thing about Seattle and Bristol is they're kind of, um, in the vernacular of my American past, uh, they are kind of the cowboys. You know, they're kind of the ones that are out there saying, we're, we're going to kind of buck the trend. And we are not going to be like everything else. So I think the one thing is that they, they are cities that um, always are kind of on the edge of saying, we're not going to conform to everything that maybe the rest of the world and the country is doing. Hopefully not during in this particular question. But I do think that's why these partnerships are really crucial. I think you have to link up outside in global partnerships to see what other people and best practices are happening around the world. And I think that that is one opportunity to do it. I think the second thing is um, that you want to attract, again, that diversity of thought that comes in. They might be right here in Bristol. But finding people who have worked elsewhere, seen other things, been else, elsewhere is crucial. And finally, I think travel. Travel is absolutely essential um, to keeping our eyes broadened. Um, but again, in the world we live in, um, this interconnected technology, um, you're virtually everywhere you want to be if you take the time to do that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Deanna. So thank you, uh, Deanna. That was fantastic and a great way to start our new season of these distinguished uh, lectures. Um, I can't uh, not make a comment on one thing that you said, and that was I love the idea of a politics shop where we could, where we could perhaps go in and choose something different, maybe. <laughs> maybe something else we have in common between uh, our countries. Um, that's as far as I'm going, otherwise I'll get into trouble. Uh, the, the one thing that I would say is that I think you've opened our eyes um, to something very important. One of the hats that I wear is as the chair of our 
Local Enterprise Partnership. And the Local Enterprise Partnership has just launched and published its industrial strategy. And all of the things that you've highlighted as the great things about our fantastic city region and clearly uh, your uh, city uh, in the US, that provides us with a blueprint. It's a blueprint about what we should be thinking about and how we should be engaging uh, in our futures and the creation of those futures. It's not by accident that both the university's uh, uh, new 2030 strategy, but also the West of England's uh, strategy and industrial strategy in particular, has at its heart purpose. It has clarity about purpose. It is about our people. It is about our place and how we shape it. But most importantly of all, it's about how we work in partnership. And for Bristol City Region, and I suspect for the rest of our country, it will be about how we become truly global in our outlook and in our um, progress as we path a new route for ourselves. And it's also going to be about how do we put this place, our city region, right at the heart of our economic recovery, but in particular, become the global gateway for a future. So, Diana, thank you very, very much. Um, I will take some of those thoughts back and encourage my board within the Local Enterprise Partnership to be more ambitious, more visionary, more edgy, <laughs> and more creative, uh, and hopefully encourage our political leaders to do likewise. We have a very small gift token. Um, we thought about withdrawing all of our funds from Hargreaves Lansdowne to support uh, this, but we decided in the end that wasn't a good idea. That's so right. We've, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to give you a very small token. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol Lectures. Thank you.